Welcome to How Not to DM. I'm your host, Derek. Thanks for joining me on my quest to interview the very best dungeon masters on this plane of existence. Before we get started, I need to shout out my patrons. Thanks so much for making this show possible. You're awesome. If you'd like to help support the show in another way, you can consider joining my Patreon or tipping me a few dollars on PayPal or coffee or by buying something for your own game group from some of my amazing affiliates. You can find the affiliate links in my link tree or in the episode show notes. Also, here's a reminder to check out Diversity Saves. If you'd like to help support diverse creators trying to get their first tabletop role-playing game projects off the ground, it's a great place to start. And now on to this episode's guest intro. Michael Lowe has a background in teaching and has combined this with his love of tabletop games to create many kid-friendly games focused on children's learning and development. Michael is incredibly passionate about his work and is constantly thinking of new ways to help kids and adults alike stretch and grow their storytelling and imagination. Enjoy! My first passionately invested campaigns were all Palladium's Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and Ripples. Oh, really? Yeah, that's what we geeked on. Especially Mutants in Avalon. I had like an ongoing campaign with my Australian buddy where I played a guy named Tom Banjo named after a Grateful Dead song. This is how nerdy a kid I was. (laughs) And he was like a giant beagle who had a massive ladybug and rode around as like a faux knight. He was Scottish. It was great. But yeah, I don't know. I guess it was like 11 when a buddy ran the first game I'd ever played in. And then after that, it's just, I mean, I ran like a three-year-long campaign at lunch of Elric, which was famous because the only person who survived all three years ran every time a fight broke out. He was renowned for being the only guy who survived because like every time a fight broke out, he was like, nope, and like just gone. I played a lot. I did what everyone does, which is start making your own stuff. And uh, I've been making games for as long as I knew you could do that, which was probably about Mm. 12. A friend of mine once asked, and I've told this story before, but it just sticks. He was like, yeah, you know, I remember when we were playing Lego battles on your floor where we used to play that Mad Max style thing and we blow each other up and rip each other's components off. And he was like, (laughs) that was a great game. Where'd you get that thing? And I was like, I made it. And he was like, I thought that was a real game. I was like, it was, but it was that. (laughs) Every game was made by somebody. Exactly. That was just made by me. Right. Yeah. And recently. Thanks. My buddy and I would play Gundams with Legos, would build like robots out of them and stuff. Have you seen Mobile Frame Zero Rapid Attack? No, not yet. Oh, no. It's free. Go get it. Lose the next two weeks of your life to obsessing about beautiful pictures of mini-scale Lego mechs. That's awesome. Also, way back to your first comment about Ninja Turtles, Mm. I don't think there's been anything as big as Ninja Turtles was for me when I was a kid as far as TV shows that have just such a huge impact. I don't know. It's interesting to think about. But yeah, everybody was obsessed. Everybody would like fight over which one they were. And the weirdest part about this was when I was 11, I was watching the TV show, but my buddy, he's now a professional artist and I make games for a living. So this is kind of fun. We hark back to this. At 11, we had a sleepover and he caught me drawing TMNT and he was like, that's not the way it's done. And I was like, (laughs) yes, it is. And he was like, no, it's not. And he showed me Eastman and Laird's comics and my mind was blown. And so TMNT for me was reading all the Eastman and Lairds. And then I got obsessed with Usagi Ojimbo, who I'm still absolutely obsessed with. 
brilliant storytelling, brilliant line work by Stan Sakai. So there's a lot of lovely childhood feels for, I think, most folks who, as old fogies, are still playing these games. And I've changed a lot in terms of both the kind of games I want to play and the kind of games I want to make over the years, which is really exciting and fun. I don't know. I take it as a sign that I'm not dead yet, if you know what I mean. (laughs) Yes. You're not dead creatively anyway. Let's dig into that. Your first experience running games for other people was at lunch then at school. Oh, gosh. I mean, I'm sure I was doing it in somebody's basement before that. But, you know, you know how these things are. You start running before you know what you're doing. And yeah, because you don't need to know what you're doing, which is the thing nobody told me at first. Everybody thinks they need to know what they're doing. The only answer is you're telling stories with your friends. Go have fun. I agree. So digging into then either your early games that you ran or maybe even something more recent, I'd love to know what you feel like are some of the big mistakes, blunders, that kind of thing that you made while running games and what kind of advice or lessons you feel like people could learn from I think the most important thing that everyone needs to learn is something I learned from teaching. I've been teaching for over two decades and I love it. I'm a lifer. I can't stop because I won't. It's too great. Kids are awesome. Teaching is amazing. It's super fun. I highly recommend it. The thing that most teachers don't understand when they start Teaching is both an art and a craft, much like storytelling, much like running a game, right? I think a lot of folks worry a lot more about making things fit within time limits, making structures make sense. They try to control a lot of the outcomes because they're nervous about the outcomes not being perfect. Teachers worry a lot about the structure of their lessons and the pacing of their lessons when they should be worrying about their students. And that's something that it takes a long time to learn. You're not teaching your students and in charge of your students. If you're doing it right, you're learning with them and having fun with them. And if you're doing it right, you will learn a lot and they will learn a lot and everyone will grow. And by the end of the year, you will do everything differently next year and it'll be great. And the same thing will be true the year after that. That's true for running a story as well. When I came back to using games to teach and designing games for teaching and learning, one of the first rules is it's a great way to reframe what a teacher thinks because you're no longer, I am going to make sure you can regurgitate this or perform this. You are Mm. thinking much more about how do I make this a fully immersive and engaging world? And what do these kids want to tell? What's their story? What's the story they want to tell? So I'm 100% collaborative. I fully think that one of the biggest things everybody could do out there to have more fun doing this stuff and be a little less precious about it, a little (laughs) less prepped. I mean, look, I'm 43. I haven't got 10 hours a week to prep a game. And if anybody expects that from me and they're not paying me, I'm sorry, they're going to be sorely let down. My advice is ask each other questions and remember it's everyone's story. It doesn't belong to any one person. If you try the auteur model, it's a great way to both offend everyone at the table, ruin some friendships, and also kind of ruin your own life trying to prep it. Ask them questions. What do you think should happen here? Dude, what would be the most amazing, terrible thing to happen? Because you made that role. What do y'all think? Pause, author moment, writer's room. What do we want to have happen here? And I think as long as you hold that in your heart, because I think the roots of gaming are often in war games, right? Everybody learned on things like D&D where winning was the issue. If story is the issue, then it gives you a much different incentive. You get to stop and be like, awesome, we're telling a dope story. What would be amazing here? How do we link this back to some of the cool threads everybody's got going? 
what do you think would be like, okay, what's behind the door, right? Like, let's go. You open the door. You tell me what you see. Those are the moments that really turn it back into this wonderful communicating, collaborative, community building experiment that really helps people learn to write and create together, which is what I think is the core of the hobby. I like that a lot. I'm definitely working on it as a concept and as part of my running games, but I feel like the more engaged and the more I engage my players with the plot and with what is happening in the world and what they are looking for as far as like story and that kind of thing, like what character development they want to see, that kind of stuff, the more engaged they are at the table and the more fun they're having. So it's definitely give and take. You definitely have to have the trust of your players and vice versa to make interesting and fun things happen instead of just well, I find a million gold behind the door. Like it takes the the right people at the table to kind of make an interesting and narrative choice. But I feel like you start small and you build from there and then people will definitely kind of come into their own. Let me reframe from a teaching perspective because that line, I find a million gold behind the door. Part of the problem is you're already (laughs) starting with a game where the structure of the game incentivizes winning and losing. And the idea of accumulating wealth and accumulating experience and accumulating power and unlocking abilities is really core to the mechanics of the game. And this is why, for me, I needed to redesign and recreate and re-engineer what games were for and what they were meant to do. So that the point was telling a good story, creating compelling characters, creating plot lines that are immersive and entangled, creating collaborative, incentivizing mechanics. If you don't do that, then ultimately you're working against the system. This is what happens in teaching, right? I used to issue this challenge to my students. I would, at the beginning of the year, say, listen, I'm going to give everybody in the room an A+, but you all have to agree and sign a form that says, I don't have to teach you anything. <laughs> okay. And then I would say, if everyone can agree and sign that, I'll give you an A+. And I would say this with the purpose of pointing something out. And it's a very simple thing. If you make a game where the point is getting points, not learning, not feeling pride in skill, not feeling pride in accomplishment, not feeling joy in investigating something new, then you kill the purpose of learning. You've destroyed it. School as a system, using grades and using these ranks, has ultimately created a system where a lot of kids, whether they're A students or F students, are incentivized to do anything but learn. I often respected my F students more than my A plus students, not the ones who got one in my class, but who had come in with that tradition. Because the F students, what they said was, okay, this is a dumb game played for arbitrary points. I quit. I'm using my energy for something else. The person at your table who says, I find a million gold behind the door, they're not playing the game for the story. They're playing the game to win. Right. The same way the F students like, all right, yeah, I'll take the A plus. Don't teach me anything. What they've just revealed is they think that school for good reason, many of them, from their own experience, isn't about them. It's not about giving them anything that matters to them. So that means you either rebuild the game so it does, or you accept that that's a logical, rational, and honestly, worthy of respect choice on their part. I get exactly what you're saying. It is a very interesting aspect of game design. Why are we doing this? What is it for? What is the goal of the players? And if they have interesting goals, they're going to make interesting choices. If their goal is to gain XP, get gold, buy bigger, better weapons and whatever else, then that's what they're going to be incentivized to do. You're absolutely right. Well, when kids um, play games, and this is why I pivoted and started doing online games with kids, I was already running homebrew stuff with the kids who came over to play with my son. It was just a hobby. 
This was like the local neighborhood kids would come over once every couple of weeks. We built the minifigs and then we talked about who would this person be and then created the character from there. Had a very loose and easy to play system. When I went online, it was all fifth ed. And the problem is if you create a character and the character's main defining qualities are things like hit points, armor class, how much damage, bunch of spells that do damage, bunch of abilities that do damage or heal damage. There's a very clear mechanical incentive. This is about fighting. This is about winning and losing and killing things. And you very quickly are like, okay, I want to create a character who's good at this because I'm not going to play a character who's going to lose. And so you can't blame them when they're like, yeah, I want all the gold. Where's all the loot? Because that's going to help me kill things, which helps me release more experience that I suck in like a vampire and then I get more power. So yeah, hold on. Where's there a place where I could go to murder more things? Because murder is awesome. It gives me stuff and power. Like, why would I not want to kill? And I'm like, wait, hold on. I'm a teacher. I don't want to do this. Gosh, I'd love them to be like, I want to talk to people and learn things about them and make friends and solve problems without killing people. Maybe I want them to have epic adventures, chase scenes, cook-offs, potion-making contests. They can be late to class in a magical school and having difficulty evading the hall monitor who happens to be the boogeyman. Let's do something that isn't, hey, you know what's great? Stabbing folks. Let's create a system where the point is not stabbing. And the rest of the stuff evolved from there. The only game I've written myself was based on the Caltrop core system by my friend Lex. Lex is awesome. So the way they set up the system was basically you do whatever you want with it. And so I wrote a game based around the novel Holes. Yes, that's such a good reference. The point of Holes is not to kill anybody, right? It's to figure out the mystery, solve the mystery, survive Camp Green Mm -hmm. Lake or whatever you decide. I kind of left it open-ended. You could make whatever you want. It was interesting when we played it with my friend group, it was very much not about the combat, right? It was about sneaking around in hallways and trying to figure out what they were going to do next and looking for clues. And when you change the incentive, when you change what the game's about, then it changes their behaviors. Well, it's amazing to me that so much of the percentage of most gameplay for most role players is combat. I mean, I love a good board game and I'll play a good board game and board games are great. But if you think about the balance in an average session, gosh, I mean, the things that make a story interesting to me, if I'm watching a movie or if I'm reading a book, if you've got an action sequence that goes on for 15 minutes, I'm asleep. (laughs) I don't care. I have to care passionately about the characters. If the people don't matter and there's just stuff happening, I'm gone. All the best movies are about interesting, flawed people who are struggling and figuring things out. The thing that makes it compelling is the drama. It's the emotions. It's the moments of mystery, the moments of compassion and empathy, of connection. That's what I wanted to teach my kids to tell stories about and get excited about. I've found that it makes for a much more welcoming game when you're telling stories which are explicitly about good stories, not about fighting. Because there are going to be some kids who are like, yeah, I really want to fight. Well, that's great. But that's a very small percentage of kids. It's one of the invisible barriers to getting into the hobby, which is a wonderful hobby and everyone should do it. But if the only game you're kind of invited to the table to play is a game about killing monsters, there's a very large percentage of kids who are like, yeah, that game's not for me because they'd rather be teen monsters dealing with emotional drama. They'd rather be superheroes who have like multiple lives and are wrestling with that more than they are doing their action scenes. Or goblins pulling pranks in junkyards on unsuspecting humans because it's funny. 
it just invites a broader range of kids to the table and gets them obsessed with the story part, which I really think is why people love it. When people say, oh God, I love D&D, they're never loving D&D because of the eight hour long combat they played. They're always loving D&D because of some wonderful, ridiculous, surprising, delightful moment where the story really happened. And that moment, they ended up creating almost in spite of the system, not because of it. They really worked hard to create that moment. And that's why they love it. It belongs to them. So Lex's Caltrip Core and all their games are a great example of what's been happening in the hobby, which is opening the doors up and making games that are designed to make it easy and fun to tell stories with other people. How do you create a mechanic that invites you? I always say to kids, I'm like, listen, we're only going to roll when we want to be surprised or inject and intensify drama. We're only going to talk about the results of that role. The results are going to matter. And we're going to talk about what's going to happen. We're going to discuss what would be awesome for the story. And that's how we're going to know. We're going to be like, oh yeah, oh my God, it would be amazing if the trouble you faced right now were that you got bit by that thing because it infected you with something or your pants fell down in the middle of the school (laughs) play. And like everyone will make fun of the underwear you mentioned you were wearing earlier today because that was part of the story earlier that we can loop back now and that would be hysterical. So that's the stuff, right? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Speaking of running games and being flexible and prepared or not prepared, I guess, like you said, can you think of a time where a player really threw the wrench in your plans and did something that you just did not expect and had to think quickly on your feet and kind of how you handled it? Every single game. I'm fully (laughs) improv, so here's a reverse example. When I have to plan, I panic. I've been running games that teach writing and where writing is a core mechanic for the kids. They build a world online together on slide decks. Anything they write gets incorporated into the plot, new characters, new places, new storylines. And so every time when we meet, we begin the game by reading things aloud and discussing how these might come in. And then as we're talking this through and we're editing their work, I'm sort of building in, I'm like, okay. I know how I'm going to use that. And okay, I'm going to bring that guy in here. So it gives me time while I'm playing to sort of help the kids weave storylines. They do it too, but I do it too. And I do this with adults. Um, Hold Fast Station is coming out soon. So I'm really used to this as a pattern. I don't have to prep. I know my world. I know my characters. I know some beats in the story that I like, but the rest is something that they get to create. Oh man, they made a MacGuffin. Awesome. I'm going to use that MacGuffin. Okay, they made a villain. If they want a villain, I'm going to figure out a reason that villain's compelling. I had the reverse experience. I had to record an entire story arc for the Stories RPG pod, which I'm super incredibly excited about. Stories RPG I made with Daniel Hines, who's the guy who made Stories Podcast, which is the longest running, largest kids podcast for storytelling ever. My kid got raised on it. He was listening to the stories. He's nine now. He's been listening to them for like nine years. So we're doing a podcast together. And the thing that blew my mind was we chunked out five hours of time. And this was me, Dan, the host of Stories Podcast, Amanda Weldon. And if you know her, Scriv the Bard from uh, Bard RPG, really amazing character arc focused Kickstarter and a really amazing community builder. She's got a charity stream coming up this week. Just a great person and wonderful storyteller. And I lost my mind. My partner did not know what to do with me because the week building up to this game, I was like, I have to know all the beats. 
I can't not know all the beats because I got to know all the beats because we have five hours to do like five, six stories. And that means I can't say, all right, so what do you want to have happen next? We right. can't you, stop. You, you don't and get writer's like, room. It. We yeah, can't like you normally do. Dan and I are doing a story from his world of the brilliant firefly, which is very four color comics and superheroes. So I read over his entire story arc from stories podcast. I had a huge spreadsheet, every single character setting, blah, 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 blah. Then I started having to break everything down. I had 8 million different arcs and I kept thinking about, okay, what do I do? And of course, when I got into it, it all flowed and it was lovely and it was exciting. And we had all these great, amazing exchanges that I never could have planned. But it really was the reverse where when I had to plan, that's what made me kind of lose my mojo. And that was what threw a wrench into my works. Like after that, I walked out and my partner looked at me and she was just like, are you okay now? She's like, it sounded like it went great. It went great, didn't it? And I was like, it did. And she was like, I told you it would. And I was like, I know, but I couldn't believe you until after. Did the prep make it work though? Did you have to prep all that? And then it worked well, or you would have had to? If I had prepped a fraction of what I had done, it would have been just as beautiful. I needed absolutely like 5% of what I made. That's like normal prep anyway, I guess. Well, but that's the thing is like, I never do that. So like the fact that I had to made me lose my mind. It was intense. It was wonderful. It was so fun. I don't know. We were all at the end. We were like, oh my God. Because there were some really good emotional moments. We had a couple of beats that were like movie level drama. Lots of great interpersonal stuff. And I hadn't planned any of that. I planned a fraction of it, but like things happened and the exchange made sense. And boom, because it's all about the characters and how they would react in that moment. Somebody Mm -hmm. says something, you riff on it, then you get that moment that you needed. And now let's hear from some of my awesome sponsors. Are you tired of games where every piece of equipment is the same? Want to play a game where your equipment matches you? Pick up a copy of Redshift, a classless D6 dice pool game where you can modify every piece of equipment from your spaceship to the equipment you carry in your hands. No two characters will be the same. Without classes or levels, you can boost the skills you want. Want to make a magic user that can also throw a punch? Go for it. Download your copy of Redshift at www.sixsidedgames.com. Again, that website all spelled out is www.sixsidedgames.com. Check out the episode notes for that link. Last but not least, I want to give a shout out to podcasteditors.online and videoeditors.online. Podcasteditors.online is the group that edits this podcast, and they do an awesome job, as you can hear. They also do actual play podcasts or any other kind of podcast that you may have. So take a look at their website, at their great rates, and see if you are interested in buying some editing hours a la carte. And if you tell them I sent you, you might get a little discount on your first couple of hours there of your podcast. So check that out. Videoeditors.online, also very useful if you are a YouTube creator, if you have any kind of video content, TikTok or Reels, short form, YouTube shorts, they do it all. So go check out videoeditors.online if you're a video creator and you want to take advantage of that too. So same deal if you want to mention How Not to DM sent you, I'm sure they'll hook you up with some discounted hours to start. So yeah, check those both out if you are a podcast or video creator or both. With all that out of the way, let's dive into this week's version of Quickfire Chaos. 
Welcome to Quickfire Chaos! This week on Quickfire Chaos, Michael and I are going to roll on some random D100 tables from the internet to create a scenario to roleplay. So we'll start with the first one, which is how your NPC might sound. Kind of give you an idea about how to roleplay them here. I got a 57. Short, punctuated bursts. Each word is a beat. Strong enunciation, but fast speech. Hmm. Okay, got it. Next is your NPC job. Six. Innkeeper. That's pretty Ah! standard. Standard fantasy fare. Oh no, there's nothing standard about it. So much room here. A trait of theirs. Twelve. Blunt. Okay, that's easy too. Blunt, fast speaking innkeeper. Not easy, but I mean like they gel together well, I think. As a character. Down for whatever. It's all good. City Quest, the last D one hundred roll. (laughs) Seventy-seven. Okay. You frantically insist on handing us a spherical object. Actually, I'm gonna let you choose how this plays in. The prompt says the party is stopped by a traveling salesman who's trying to hand them this circle and cloth. Yeah. So I'm going to be a generic human. I look like I've been through some battles recently and have clearly like been sleeping outside, maybe unkempt, maybe a little bit. I got bags under my eyes. That do you stagger into my bar or my inn, or do you actually walk yeah. through the front door? I'm going to like swing open those double doors and kind of like limp in and find the nearest stool and kind of like collapse into it and sit down and like lean over onto the bar. All right. Well, Brom has two enormous plates in his massive beard that go all the way down and then around the waist. He's got them knotted. You're not sure why. There's a very large and prodigious and respectable stomach to go with and hands the size of shovels. The first thing that is going to come out of his mouth isn't to you. It's to one of the other servers. And he's going to lean over and say, make sure you see the color of his money because we don't know if he's got any. Look at him. It could be a bum. And then that's exactly what you hear. That You don't hear this. I mean, you might catch it. This would be up to you to decide. I, I'll, you I'll say that? I'm too tired to pay attention. Like okay. I hear him whispering and like gesturing to me with his head or whatever. So I like, uh, know he's talking about me, but I don't know what he's saying. Okay, well, the server looks tired and looks bored and looks like she's probably been living in this town for far too long and walks over to your table and says, the big man wants to know what you're having. I'll kind of like groan as I sit up and groan as I like turn, like clearly I'm in some pain and I'll look at her and say, oh, whatever's hot, whatever's hot and ready. Money before service. Right. What's the what's the standard fare for, you know, the special? I'm going to assume Brom is actually a decent chef. But we're <laughs> going to say that whatever this special is, it smells delicious in here. So whatever is fair, but on the more expensive end. This is like, okay, I expect to have my belly full is the feel you get from the price quoted. Are you ponying up is the question. I'll pointedly look at Brom, the barkeep, although I don't know his name yet, patting around like I don't know if I have coin. And then I'll pull from a breast pocket like a big old bag and pull out a few coins and hand them to her. Question, do you have any weaponry on you right now? I've got a sword and stuff, like a dagger on my belt probably. And then I'll put the coin bag back. 
He gives you a nod from across the room, turns and begins to do like a prep service that is really five star. Somebody wow. had dreams of big cities. When it arrives, there's like an absolutely delicious and profound savory smell coming off of this stew. You are hungrier than you realize. The mm -hmm. bread is crusty, and when you crack it, it's warm and chewy. And it's all so delicious that you don't notice that extra spherical object that you swallow as you're eating. <laughs> Until after it's slipped down your gullet. Yeah. I was going to say, like, I probably start off pretending I'm going to eat properly with a fork and knife and then probably just escalate into shoving pieces into my face. And yeah, it's like I take a big old bite of that roll and then all of a sudden, oh. You're going to notice it and you're going to feel it going down. Something yeah. was in there. That was not food. And whatever it is, it went right down. I'm going to. But you're still hungry and there's still some there. As I'm eating, I'm going to kind of like nudge the person next to me and say, oh. Is there anything particular he does with his bread here that, that you know of? Is there like a... a guy looks at you and he goes, yeah, he makes the best bread you can find in this or the next 10 counties. Shut up and eat, you derelict. And then goes back to eating. Well, well quite a welcoming town here. Yeah, anyway. Um, the server comes over and she goes, on the house because you look tired, hon. Sense a big mug of ale in front of you and you catch the eye of the guy behind the bar. And he gives you a nod and then a wink and turns around. Hmm. But what do I do in this situation? Exactly. I feel conflicted because I'm very hungry. Haven't had a decent meal in weeks. They just gave it to me on the house. Well, they gave you the beer also, on the house. Oh, you the paid for the them. House. You paid for the meal, but the beer will help you wash down whatever that was that you just swallowed. It, it will. I think that I'm just going to chalk it up to... He put a rock in my bread or something because he didn't like me very much. He kind of <laughs> gave me the look and he whispered, and I'm just going to not worry about it. And I'm going to chug that ale. You can hear more of him talking if you want to chat with him about it. I'm okay. happy to play into that. But I love this as a setup. If I'm going to have him desperately press something into your hands and he's running it in, he's got to be low key about it. Either the server's going to have to do some sleight of hand and plant it on him. And if that's something that a server can do, then I know he's running a shady business. Or I'm, I was just like, you know what? Let's put it in the food. Because I was like, I feel like this is going to be a good meal. Man looks like he needs a good meal. Who's he uh, going to put it in? He's going to put it in the guy who looks beaten up, but he looks like he's got enough toughness to take it. So yeah. whatever it is, somebody's looking for it. And he's hoping so you're going to take it somewhere. I'm thinking now, I'm remembering back to holidays where my grandmother would put a nut in the pudding. And right. whoever ate the pudding with the nut inside of it was like the winner of that evening and got like the little paper crown and they got to open the present first or something. So thinking about that, I kind of like look around a little bit. I don't see any signs that say anything like there's a festival going on or you're a winner. But I stand up and I say, uh, barkeep, I think I'm the winner. I think I, I swallowed the nut in that bread. I'm, okay. I so think we I can, won. So we can take this one of two ways. And this is what I love. Yeah. This is where I would be collaborative. I'd be like, dude, we could either go with the barkeep's trying to do something shady and he can panic and like try to like hush you up. Or we can go with there is actually some weird local custom. And by admitting this, you're going to trigger some weird event in the bar where everybody's going to be like, Oh, like, you are the Lord of the Vines. And like, you're going to have to deal with whatever magical consequence there is to being the Lord of the Vines. Yeah. Which you like to do? We're going to let fate decide. I'm going to roll. Ooh, I love it. 
It's a one. It's a festival. <laughs> I'm, okay. I'm one. I'm the winner. You're like one. There's a hush that falls over the entire bar. And then Brom, he looks at you and he goes, All hail the Lord of the day. And everybody goes, hell. And there's like a lot of bowing. And music starts up from somewhere. It's some kind of reedy, real children of the corn meet something Scottish feel to it. So you have this wicker man feeling like everything goes sideways. This was like a normal inn. You were like, yeah, I'm just slumping in here. Gosh, I could use something to eat. Mm, that was yummy. Hey, what's that? And then all of a sudden you're in the twilight zone. The <laughs> people start dancing. You are lifted up on a throne and you're carried to the front of the bar. You're sat at the bar and people sort of surround you and different people are like massaging your feet. You're being slowly unclothed and reclothed in garments of really fine satin and suede and silk. Pretty soon you're all clothed in green. You have tassels from the sides of you. You have no idea where most of your materials have gone. Most of your clothes are gone. Most of your pack is gone. But everyone here is attending to you. There's great laughter and joy throughout all of the revelers. Brom claps you on the back and says, I never would have expected that it would have been you, but I'm very grateful. You're doing us a great service, son. I'm just going to assume this is just like we did back at home. And I'm mm. going to kick back a little bit and relax, stretch my back and say, ah, it's good to be rewarded every once in a while. Grandmother <laughs> would be proud. <laughs> he says, aye, the vines reward those who serve them. And then the whole bar chorus is back. The vines reward those who serve them. And like, there's great rejoicing and cheering. The wine is flowing very freely. And there are people who are offering it to you in cups of whatever gender strikes your fancy. The most attractive people who you might find interesting are interested in you. Everyone is focused on you. This entire celebration seems to revolve around you. If you give in, you're going to find yourself calmly drifting off into sleep in this lovely feeling of being embraced by a community. Now, it'll be really interesting to see where you wake up. Right. Do I get sacrificed to the <laughs> gods in the morning? You don't know what problems they've been having. Clearly, could in one of them. But this would definitely <laughs> lead to an interesting scene. And I love your reaction. One of the things I always tell students, and this is something I think those types of games that incentivize win-lose ideas. They also incentivize this, this attachment to seeing things from the point of view of your character, which I think is really powerful because it can create deep immersion, right? Great literature, what does it do? It teaches you empathy by forcing you to walk a mile in someone else's shoes. Mm -hmm. You become that person, you feel their feels, and it expands your ability to associate yourself with other people. So it's wonderful and powerful to see things from the character's point of view. But I think the other thing that's really key and that I love about collaborative gaming is it teaches you to press pause, step out of your character's shoes and into the author's shoes and say, what would be cool here? Like if I were my character, would I want to swallow this thing and like wake up in some weird cultish? No. But would that be an amazing, cool? So like if I were reading this and we got to the end of the chapter and he was like, I faded away as the smiles around me started to look slightly frenetic and hungry. You turn the page, you're like, oh man, next chapter, let's go. That's the thing that I love about collaborative games is they cultivate a type of resilience in kids and also not only an understanding of the empathic identification with character, which is great, but also an identification with author and author's craft. 
How do I make a story fun? How do I make it interesting? What would make this hilarious, terrifying, weird, upsetting, compelling? All those lovely adjectives that we all like to feel in our feels when we're in a story. Yeah. (laughs) I was trying to decide. Like It seemed like it would be nefarious, but I was like, why do I have to make it that way? Maybe I'm just the winner. Maybe I'm Well, and you pitched it. That was the part I loved too. You very naturally were like, you know, this reminds me of, and I was like, great, let's go with that. And I think if there's one thing that I've learned as a teacher and also as a storyteller, it's don't do it alone and don't force it on anyone. Listen to your players, listen to your students, find out what they want to do. Let them drive. Up with the good ideas all the time, right? It's not just your burden. Yeah. Well, and it's more than that. It's an act of sharing and collaborative joy. Like everyone loves the story that they write. There's a lot of great psychological research out there that says when a person makes a thing, they think it's way more important and way more special and precious than when they buy it because they didn't make it. So if the story Hmm. belongs to everyone at the table, everyone loves it more than if it's just a thing that happened to you. Makes a lot of sense. Let's transition now to your work in game design. So specifically, you've talked about your experience running games for kids, and you've talked about making your own games. Tell us about Star Sworn, the game that you have written. Where did you get the idea? How did you get started? And how is it going so far? Star Sworn is a evolution of the game I've been running to teach kids how to write for the last three years. So I run week-long classes and weekly classes during the year that let kids first build a world, build characters in that world, and then half of each session is reading aloud, editing, and cheering for everyone's stories. The other half is playing through the game to see what happens next. Starsworn is my play-at-home version of that game, because one of the things that I always wondered about, it's weird, those of us who've been playing these games, right? We write these terrible technical manuals that nobody but other people like us want to read. And then we're like, why don't people know how amazing this is? It's so amazing. And you hand the book to somebody and they go, cool pictures. I'm done. Bye. And then we're confused, right? So Starsworn is my attempt to use familiar stuff to help people at home who've never played a storytelling game, don't really know what they are, probably heard something on Stranger Things and thought, ooh, that sounds fun, to play at home with all ages. And what I used was primarily coloring books and choose-your-own-adventure books. So Starsworn is a complete story arc. Every single episode is connected with an AP podcast that is played live by the Cast of Stories podcast in the world of Max Goodname, and it's play to learn. You literally don't have to know anything. You pick up the book and it says, read this out loud. And you do. And then it says, turn the page. And then it says, all right, grab a character sheet. Answer these three questions. Okay, now turn the page. Read this out loud. All right, ask and answer these questions of each other to figure out what's happening in the scene. And it breaks down in most of the pages to a two-page spread. And I've used this in person with kids. Works great in a classroom. The first page is a read aloud and a coloring book illustration by the amazing Rob Hebert of nerdypapergames.com. He's a Emmy-nominated game designer, and he's an absolutely unbelievable artist. I am constantly like floored by his stuff. It's incredible. Did he do all of the artwork for Starsworn? Yeah. Yep. Every single bit. He is our full-time collaborator, and I always say he's a full creative member of the team because when we start, I'll say, here's my arc, and here's what we're going to do. 
and we'll work on the visuals together and that forms the world. So a lot of mm-hmm. the characters, they're collaborations. I actually uh, backed the Kickstarter and I just haven't dived into it yet since my ah! kid's not old enough, right? Oh at, my gosh. At two. But that, eventually he will be. So I'm really excited. That means the world to me and it's super exciting. So in that case, I have all the reasons in the world to show you this stuff. This is exciting. I'm going to open the new, new compendium. So each of these scenes is a two-page spread. One page is the read aloud and the illustration. So you read that aloud to the kid and you hand them the illustration to color on. Mm -hmm. The other page is how to tell the scene. And every scene breaks down into three parts. First, there's a piece that says, explore the scene. If you explore the scene, what you do is you ask and answer questions, and it gives you suggestions about things you might like to describe. So example, when you're at the Starfall Fair, you head over to the food cart section, Spicy Wing Showdown. After scoring some tasty treats near the food court, you're drawn to a crowd around two stalls. You spot Chef Susie, the best chef in town. She recognizes one of you and waves you over. You gotta help! My team sampled raw basilisk peppers, and now they're breathing fire in the bathroom. And you've got this awesome illustration, right? And then on the second Classic page, Susie. yeah, of course, you got to help Chef Susie win the cook-off or Chef Slicer gets her restaurant. So there's- Ooh, they're playing for pinks. Okay. There's a pitch, right? There's a consequence. Explore the scene says, ask and answer questions, speak as your characters, describe what happens, and decide how things turn out. So it gives you tellers, speak as the two chefs, freak out, holler directions and demands, look for ingredients, threaten, and cook. And then it asks some questions. What's Chef Slicer like? Why does he want Susie's restaurant? Who's in the crowd? Who are they cheering for or against? And the kids are are absolutely invited to join in and ask these questions, right? Then there's make a move. It gives you some ideas about things you might decide to do once you've decided how you want to act, right? That might help or might cause problems, right? You could get physical. You could figure it out. You could help. You could influence. Chef Susie is panicking. Build her trust in herself. Figure it out. Find a secret ingredient. Devise a genius side dish or snoop on Slicer's food. Ooh, a little spy work, yeah. Exactly. You give them some ideas. And part of this is to cultivate that ability to think on your feet about what would an author think, right? If you're an author in a scene, what would you think about that might be an interesting way for a given character to solve a given problem? And then triumphs and troubles, which are the results of the roles. And we can get into how the roles work. They're very simple. It's a blades in the dark mechanic. But the goal here was to create something that anybody could pick up and play with a group of kids of any age. And it works like a charm. It's been absolutely amazing. I now have the excuse to write chapter four, which I'm super excited about because things get Uh awfully epic by chapter four. I don't want to give too many reveals, but they involve a flying fortress, airships, arcane engines nefarious doings you get to design your own airship in chapter four which is the super exciting piece like the kids nice. get to do all this. but all of this also comes with an appendix that's full of tools for kids to use and for parents to use with kids so that they can learn how to one build uh, characters but slowly it scaffolds up to more difficult mechanics so you start with very basic ones Then you get your special ability when the stars fall and you're chosen by one of the star signs. But you have to write the myth of your star sign and then explain how it helps you mechanically do something exceptional. After that, in chapter three, you get drama clocks, which are a way to ramp up the drama and create a very mechanically 
intense way that if you don't score a certain number of successes, a certain number of triumphs in a certain number of moves, something bad happens and it derails things and things get more intense. Mm-hmm. Chapter four will be unrolling some more new mechanics. And in our newest edition, so Giga City uh, Guardians is going to be like Star Sworn, released in chapters digitally and then published quarterly. And we're going to keep doing new arcs. So we're going to do Giga City Guardians, which is four color superhero greatness. And that one, I've introduced a rule for impact. So you can sacrifice your hearts to get larger impacts from your moves if you want to affect the whole city or if you want to affect the entire globe because you want to go Superman on it. So all of these, the goal is slowly roll out how to play the game. And then once kids know how to play the game, keep cultivating how to tell the stories well together to make them fully capable of picking this up, running it for their friends and learning to tell the stories. And there's always a writing component in all of this. It's built into every episode. Every single chapter has multiple writing opportunities in it. So it's a literacy tool. It's a collaborative story game. It's a role-playing game. It's a coloring book. It's choose-your-own-adventure. Yeah, it's a lot of stuff. And it's loads and loads of fun, and I'm incredibly proud of it. It does sound like a ton of fun. And like you said, like there's tons of stuff in here that would be fun for any group to play, not just for kids. I love that. So based on your teaching experience, Mm. the two decades you spent teaching and your TTRPG experience, what lessons did you take from those two kind of experiences to build this game that teaches things better than perhaps most schools curriculum does, right? Like, why is this a more effective tool, I guess, than what kids might be experiencing? Well, I want to be careful because teaching is an art and a craft. And the thing is, most teachers are game designers. That's exactly what they're doing. They're user designers. What they're doing is they're designing a particular experience to be incredibly compelling, immersive, and help build their users' skills. And very often, these are also people who don't have an interest in the product. They also have to be sort of entertainers, right? The thing that I think is powerful about games and the part that blew my mind and also made me feel a little silly when I started building educational games Story games are immersive and compelling in a way that a lot of other things aren't. And they also achieve and tick a lot of the boxes that educators have to work the hardest to tick. So example, building classroom culture. If you really want to build classroom culture effectively, you really have to make sure the kids have agency to decide various elements of what happens in the room and how the room is run. Hmm. And if you don't do that, They very rightfully feel that they aren't creating the culture. It's something that's being imposed upon them, right? A good role-playing game, it teaches you that you're not in charge from the get-go. It is a collaborative endeavor. When you sit down to the table, the goal is not, I will make you do X, Y, Z. The goal is, we will together create. And of course, every teacher will tell you they want their kids to have agency. They want their kids to have voice. They want their students to walk into the room and say, I want to study this, and here's how I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do this project, but I have a proposal for the way I'd like to do it. If you've got kids who talk to you that way, you're doing everything right. Games reframe how to approach instruction in a way that helps teachers be more open to inviting students to the collaborative process, and Hmm. also it helps kids choose what they want in a way that makes it very compelling for them. So classic example. I hate personal narratives. 
violently and with a passion. I guess that probably requires a little explanation. If you say to a kid, I want you to write about your own life and how you feel, the level of emotional maturity that it takes to process how you feel about your life, what it means about who you are, and then express it on the page vulnerably and honestly in a way that you feel comfortable sharing with somebody you don't know that well is immense. It's an obscene ask. I mean, if you tell an adult, listen, I want you to really expose yourself and talk honestly about who you are. <laughs> they're going to lie. And they're not going <laughs> to. Yeah, I was thinking that exact thing. <laughs> of course they are. And so if you say to a kid, hey, we're going to make a world, any kind of world you like, all answer questions about that world and kind of collaborate together to build it. So do you want to be in the far future? Do you want to be researchers exploring the edges of space? Do you want to be in a magical world where we're trying to conserve magical creatures that are going extinct? Do you want to be a monster teen in their freshman year at a magical high school? You are giving them agency to talk about whatever they like. And I guarantee you, will they end up talking about their lives? You bet they will. Will they be absolutely joyously sharing things about their lives with the safety of being able to do it through an avatar? Yes, yes, they will. Will they end up trusting their friends? And this is part of the collaboration and the culture mm. building in a room. Listen, how do you build trust, right? You build trust when you do something risky and you trust somebody else to catch you, and they do. When somebody else saves your bacon when you need them, when you feel vulnerable, when you feel scared, and somebody else backs you up. That's what happens in a great game. You have these emotionally powerful moments where there's great risk, where there's something that is emotionally difficult, right? That faces your character and other players step in to help you and they support you and you succeed. Kids end up after playing in one or two of my games, they always end up staying on the Zoom call. We go for two hours Half of it's reading aloud and editing, half of it's playing the game, and they argue about who gets to host when I'm gone. <laughs> and they just stay on writing together because they trust each other. And these are kids who haven't met in real life. They are online best buds. I have so many kids who now all have like big group chats. They're constantly talking about like, yeah, we've been writing a second plot line or a third plot line for the Young Gods game. And next class, we're going to all sign up and we're going to do this. And those are real relationships and real culture, and they have real connections to one another that they've built because the game helped them build. So it's a really beautiful way to both create trusting bonds, link academic success to peer celebration and joy, link student agency to academic skills, and finally give kids an opportunity to experiment with identity in a way that's safe and discuss difficult things with a degree of remove. And frankly, it just makes writing fun and rewarding. It took a long time for me to enjoy writing. When I started loving writing was a summer where, because I had struggled with writing so much the previous school year, my mother started making me write like a page every day about whatever. And yep. it was kind of like, write something and it's going to make you better at writing. And I think I had just watched Jurassic Park not for the first time, but like again, and I loved it so much. And I was like, all right, I'm going to just start writing newspaper articles about like the random crime scenes where dinosaurs have attacked because they made so it to the mainland. And that's like when I started loving it, I was like, oh yeah, there's like these big slash marks on the side of this RV. And I was just thinking about what would happen if dinosaurs started attacking. 
And then that's just snowballed into what I do today. And it's funny how it starts like that. Well, I always say to kids, like, listen, if you tell me you don't like writing, I'll tell you I don't like basketball. And I'm like, look, I'm bad at basketball. I'm terrible at it. If I play it, I'm going to suck. And so nobody likes to do things they suck at because they're not fun. Now, on the other hand, if you made basketball fun for me, like I was playing with people who were of similar ability and I was having a a really good time with them. I liked everybody I was playing with. It was a great break in my day. All of a sudden, I might get good at basketball and I might decide I liked it. It's the same thing with writing. If you don't have any joy in your writing, if everything's like, tell us about a time when you suffered personal failure and how you grew. And you're like, oh my God, I've died just reading that prompt. There's a very good reason everybody would dip out. Part of Stories RPG, the podcast, Mm -hmm. is also going to be these monthly releases of play-at-home games digitally. And then every three or four months, we'll be releasing a physical copy as well. But it's also going to include all sorts of educational tools. And one of the ones I'm obsessed with right now, I had this idea about a month ago, and then everybody started talking about Dungeon 23. And I was like, oh, that's cool. My idea was write a world, the calendar. So it's going to start every day. There's a small prompt. This world is dot, dot, dot. And then it'll have a couple of different options. And in the far future, in the ancient past, in a fantasy place, every day you turn over a new one and you answer another prompt. By the end of the year, 365 prompts. And Mm -hmm. some of them I want to have like little tables roll to find out whether the next thing you see is this, this, or this. And some of them, I want them to hearken back to earlier. So on this day, turn back to the character you made on January 12th. This person shows up. What do they want from you? And what do you do about it? And so the goal is write a world and write a full story, write a novel, just one day at a time, having fun with it. Don't take it too seriously. If it's too precious, you won't do it. The goal here is to give people tools that help them tell stories and help them realize they don't have to be consumers of content. You can be creators of content, and it's so much more satisfying to an unbelievable degree. And you develop all these lovely skills that end up helping you do everything else you might want to do in life. Awesome. I mentioned earlier that Starsworn was a Kickstarter that recently closed. So I'd love to know, had you ever done crowdfunding before? What kind of research did you do? And if you could go back and do it over again, is there anything you'd do differently or any kind of advice you'd give to someone who's undertaking a project like that? I can tell you some things I did right and some things I did wrong. First off, my friend Mickey, and this was part of the good advice, have good friends, have friends with skills and ask (laughs) them for help. Get them to work with you. Work with people you love and respect and know. Yeah, in my case, just get lucky in the people you know. Mickey is somebody I've known for, gosh, as long as I've known my wife. So 15 years, she runs a sticker store called pineberrypaper.com. And she sends stickers all over the world and designs stickers and does massive amounts of shipping. She became my distributor and shipper and also helped me make all these amazing stickers and pins, which are great. One of the big things I'd say there is find somebody who knows from shipping. Don't try to do it yourself unless you're planning a very, very small run and you know you're not going to be successful. If you know you're only going to have to deal with 50 people, great. Ship out of your house. It'll be fine. If you're going to deal with 300, 400 people, find somebody who knows how packaging and shipping work because you have no idea what you're in for. Another hint, US Media Mail is your friend. 
US media mail has the lowest national shipping rates out of any kind of mail. And as long as it's a book, you can do it. If you're trying to run a Kickstarter for something with a massive amount of dice and meeples and cards and whatnot, sorry, you're out of luck. But if it's just a book, US media mail will make shipping possible for you. You're going to have to learn things about boxes you didn't know were important. Rigid mailer versus bubble versus, and all of those prices, all of those expenses, they rack up. Another suggestion, build a community so that you have people to ask questions. If you don't know a lot of people and you can't ask a lot of questions, you're going to find yourself stuck in a lot of problems you didn't anticipate. I had the entire Starsworn arc done before I ran this Kickstarter. I had been slowly writing each chapter along with the podcasts that Dan was producing, and we released those one at a time, once every couple of months. So we had three chapters done, and we had paid for the art, and we had been selling digital downloads for long enough that we were able to recoup the cost of creation. And the print run was just a, okay, there's a couple distributors who want a few copies. Might as well see if we can get a few more copies so that we make sure that the order can be large enough to get our price per unit down. And that ended up being a brilliant move. It ended up working out really well. The final thing I'll say is don't expect to make much money. If you are in game making to make money, somebody has been lying to you. I don't know who it is, but don't trust that person anymore. They're like, yeah, you want to know how to make a lot of money? Don't listen. You have to develop your own approach. And if you're really serious about doing this as a business, I'm a full-time as owner and CEO of Luck of Legends LLC. I teach classes every day of the week and I make games. The combination makes a salary. And I'm building out. I'm really excited. We're going to South by Southwest. I'll be presenting. Oh, yeah. Yeah. South by Southwest Education. I'm going to be presenting there on this stuff. So super excited. I'm going to be releasing a game designed for classroom use and for writing in the spring. So there's a lot of things going on. I'm going to be releasing this kid's podcast that is multiple arcs and comes with the downloadable games. So there's a lot of ways I'm trying this, but the bottom line is if you're serious about it as a business, it will require you being serious about it as a business. If it's a labor of love, by all means, fall in love with it, make it, put it up on itch, start selling it, talk to people. Don't go into it expecting to make money or hit it big. Go into it for the love of the game and to meet other amazing creators. And then you might find yourself moving slowly towards being in the business end of things and saying, okay, I'm ready to do this move. All right, let's try this. And you'll learn as you go. Yeah, I recently completed one as well. Well, not completed, I guess. As of recording, we have Mm. funded and I'm still working on tying up a few loose ends and getting it ready to send out to people. We did only digital, so um, didn't have to worry about the shipping side of things. I'm interested in it. And so I may hit you up at some other point to talk about that. No, you're smart. Do digital. No, (laughs) do digital. Yeah. It's honestly just that my buddy and I who did it together were like, it'd be cool if we had the book in our hands. And that's the only reason why we care about it. I'm going to tell you this. I got my (laughs) first copy of Star Wars right here. I'm going to pull this out. This is my copy that I even carved up. This is my test copy. And my really nice ones are in the mail. And I literally, the day I got it, I held it in my hands. I rubbed it on my face. (laughs) It's so good to hold it in your hands. You did a thing, man. I did it. Yeah. You did that thing. You got to hold that in your heart because you know there was so much love and passion and creativity in that. Dude, celebrate yourself for being the boss you are. Well, I'll celebrate when we've 
sent out all the copies and that's then a lie. I feel like I did the thing. That's a lie. I got to still fulfill, right? That's, you're going to, you're going to say that you're going to think like, I'll feel good. One side. That's the game. That's the trap. That's the capitalist oh, trap. Man. That's the like, I'll never do enough, but I didn't have enough copies go out. But now I have this other game I need to make. Well, but it didn't really sell as many as that. Stop it. You did a thing. Do it. <laughs> I, feel I, the I pride. Did. You did I a did. thing. I did. And it feels good. And I've play tested it with a bunch of groups and had a fun and a few people played it on stream and they had fun. I felt really good at that point when someone else was playing it and having fun. So yeah. Right on. No, I just, I'm sorry. I've seen so many folks in this space who do amazing things, create amazing things and spend entirely too little time feeling excited that they Mm -hmm. did those wonderful things that are life goals. Like gosh, I got a kid's book going out to 300 people who are going to play it with their kids. And I got another 200 copies I'm sending to stores to send. And there's just so much joy in the idea that this thing that I think is really, really fun and really, really educational is going to go into people's hands and make a difference, hopefully, for them. So there's got to be joy in that, right? Like There is, yes. It'll be fun to see like people commenting about, oh, we just played it and we did this and that, like hearing the stories about people play. I think that'll be so good. You've mentioned a few times that you do weekly classes Mm -hmm. and you do a class that kind of lasts for one week as well for people who want their kids to sign up and play this game with you and learn a lot about it and kind of catch the TTRPG bug. So if people wanted to sign up for that, I guess, first of all, like what's the age range that you work with and also how can they sign up? I say seven to 13, but some of my kids are now 14, 15, and they're still going with their same crews. The real key is if you've got a kid who says they don't like writing or who has lots of stories they want to tell, but they've never written them down, I will get them writing hundreds of pages. I mean, I have kids who've written novels from the games we've played together. The core of the game is you write to advance the plot and your character's abilities. So the writing is integral to the system. So yeah, I'm at luckoflegends.com. And you can also find storiesrpg.com is going to have all of our podcasts, the listen to learn and also download to play. There's a Patreon that'll allow you to have every digital download as it's published and also automatically get sent the published book once every couple months. And you'll get the write a world calendar prompt so you can keep writing with your kid at home. So if you've got somebody at home who could fall in love with stories, could afford to fall in love with writing please sign them up. This is not the class that they're going to be like, oh no, I have another class. This is the one they're going to be shirking their homework to do. I had a lovely experience today, actually. We had a first class for my, usually during holidays, I'll have a Monday through Friday class and we go hard. First day we're building the world. They're writing right now. Tomorrow we'll be reading and playing. I had a colleague, the amazing Catherine Fisher of Edutale, who's a German colleague who does therapeutic work with kids using a game that she's designed. She's brilliant. She signed her older kid up and they were in my class. And I didn't want to ask afterwards, like, do you have any questions? I was like, I'm, it's a little formal. I'm like, oh, Catherine's a friend, but like, I don't want to bug her. And uh, she posted on Twitter. She's like, I can't stop my kid from writing. I had to force her to close her computer to go to bed. I just wanted to cry. So you can find me at luckalegends.com for the classes, storiesrpg.com for the pods and the downloadable games. And um, I've got YouTube videos up that are linked on all of those. There's a million other games on itch, luckoflegends.itch.io. 
I'd love to talk to anybody. Please feel free to reach out. I have a couple Discord servers, including a one that's for teachers who use games mm. in the classroom. That's such a great community. There are so many brilliant people there. A lot of folks deeply involved in the work of how to use games to sort of blow up a lot of the problems with education and reframe them. So yeah, please reach out. I've had nothing but amazing experiences in the online indie role-playing community. I've met great people. I don't know. Everybody who's like, Twitter has been so toxic. Even before Musk took over, I'm, I'm like, actually... I've had nothing but lovely experiences and I'm really, really sad. <laughs> like yeah. things are, I'm like, it's been such a great community building. I met genuine friends who I've connected deeply with. And I've found <laughs> so many amazing folks who've been using games either personally with their kids or yeah. in classrooms. The problem is it's all been lovely gamers and designers who are just doing this work in isolation. And they're like, yeah, I have a game I've been running for the last 10 years with the kids in my class. And it's been amazing for all these reasons. And yeah, nobody else plays it because nobody else knows it exists. And I'm like, you yeah. need to do that. Like, let's go. Because there are so many teachers who are looking for ways to help their kids. And any tool, it. if it's easy to use, if you can give it to me and I can use it tomorrow, any teacher will be like, yeah, give me. Because right. we're always looking. I mean, I don't, I always tell kids. The teacher's rule, the pirate's rule, and the writer's rule, they're all the same rule. Beg, borrow, and steal. That's the rule. <laughs> and so I'm always like, yeah. As a teacher, you use anything for your kids. Because if it works to help them learn, you're in. You don't care. Yeah. All the rest doesn't matter. That's what matters. Same thing is true when you're writing, right? Like, Make it beautiful. Make it fun. Don't worry about anything else. The last question I love asking people is just about advice that you've got that you've heard or that you have developed yourself over the years about running games. And then also I'd love to hear your advice to parents and educators about facilitating games or that kind of stuff. I think it's the same piece of advice for storytellers and running games. Ask the other people at the table what should happen and listen. That's it. Because I think that's something people forget. We're also worried about making the story work that we forget that we're not the ones who are running the story. We're part of the story. We're sharing it. It's a communal experience. Share the story at the table. Listen to everybody else. Ask them questions. You'll find yourself surprised and delighted by where the story goes if you do. The second piece for parents and educators, there are so many ways to start with very simple, very straightforward story games. Kids love stories. It's the first most intuitive game. When people have that, what is an RPG conversation? I always say like, gosh, people are making it way too complicated. Like it's very simple. It's when you see a kid and one kid has one figure and another kid has another and he goes, I'm going to fight you. And the other one goes, I run away. And then they go, that's it. That's a role-playing game. They're telling a the story. They know how to do it. It's the first game they start playing. They don't need any coaching. My two-year-old, like it blew me away. He's starting to do voices for different things and talking oh. to them because he sees it everywhere and he's doing that. And I was just like, oh, whoa, like I didn't tell him to do this. He's just doing it. We're the ones who forget. Teachers and parents are the ones who need to relearn how to play story games with kids. And the cool part is once we do, there's all these ways in which we can help them learn some of the things that we've learned about telling compelling stories, right? Coach them emotionally about identity, right? Like, who do you want to be? How do you want to deal with problems? What happens if you punch somebody? How's that going to change what happens, right? Those things are wonderful teaching opportunities that take a lot of the pressure and anxiety of I'm telling you what we ought to do 
out of the conversation and say, I'm allowing you to do what everyone needs to do to learn, which is experiment. Try a thing out and then let's talk about what would happen. Okay. Well, if that happens, how do we like that outcome? How did that work for the story? Great. So these are things that are so intuitive, so automatic, and so delightful. I've found myself bonding very deeply with my son over all the stories that we've told. He's been writing 10 pages a week. And when he started, he would write maybe two sentences. And now he's, you give him any story prompt, he's immediately got some dramatic pitch. And I'm like, how the heck did he come up with that? The answer is it's natural for him now. Stories flow out of him like water. It's great. (laughs) That's so cool. I would love to, I mean, not necessarily comparing my child, but it would be really fun and fulfilling to feel like your kid is excited about it and getting that much out of it as well. That's the piece that makes a difference to me. He loves telling stories. He's doing it nonstop. He creates worlds at the drop of a hat. He doesn't think about it. It's natural to him. And he does it with his friends. They do it with him. And yeah, I don't know. That's a joy as a parent when you see a kid loving to create. You're like, okay, I don't know if I have anything to do with this, but I'm not going to get in its way. I'm going to make sure it's got lots of room to keep doing this. I love it. Thank you so much for joining me, Michael. It's been a ton of fun to chat about your game, about your philosophies, about everything that you're doing over at Luck of Legends. Hopefully, uh, people who are listening will hit you up if they're interested in starting to run these games themselves. You mentioned where they can find you on your website. I'll include well, all of that stuff in the episode notes. The so, really um, key thing is go to storiesrpg.com and please listen to the podcast. It's free to listen. It's made for all ages. It's Giga City Guardians. It's a four-color superheroic fantasy about a superhero team kind of wrestling with the legacy of doing superheroic, quote-unquote, things and having to find out what the consequences of doing what classic, quote-unquote, heroes do is. So it's a brilliant podcast. I'm really excited about it. It's got the amazing talents of Amanda Weldon, Daniel Hines, and Scrib the Bard. And it's going to come with play-at-home games. This will all be released. There will be a fully illustrated play-at-home literacy-improving game for you and your family up at storiesrpg.com along with the pod. And this is going to keep going. This is only our first arc. We've got so many other worlds to explore. I believe it. Thanks so much for taking time to chat with us and share a little bit about your world. And like I said, I backed the project. Super excited to jump into that as soon as my kid is old enough to really appreciate it and kind of hit the ground running. I really hope that you keep being successful and keep churning out games because I know there's a lot of people out there who love it. Well, I can't help myself. So it's been absolutely my pleasure (laughs) talking with you as well. And uh, yeah, stay in touch. Like I said, there's nothing I can do at this point to stop making games, running games for kids, and teaching with games. So expect a lot more of that. Like I said, I've got an ed game coming out. I'm super excited to get into the classroom. So I'll keep you in the loop. Amazing. Much love. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for listening to How Not to DM. Now it's time for a sneak peek into next week's guest, Quincy of Quincy's Tavern and Jason of Critical Dice. I want to hear about how you two met then. Um, <laughs> the, the, the convergence before the convergence. So I defer you, to Jason because he says I tell it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying that it is inconsistent with my memories. And, and, like a, a and, and being, <laughs> being so aged, clearly my memory is 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 impeccable. Um, yes. All right. I defer no. to Jason. Jason, you All say right. what happened. Let's hear both versions. Yeah. 
Oh, okay. Then that means Quincy has to go first if we want both versions. <laughs> really short version, yeah. Let's yeah. To hear more about how they met each other, about their upcoming event, the convergence that they've been working on for the last year, and more, tune in next week. A little note on the convergence I am planning to attend. So if you don't know what it is, be sure to listen next week or go check it out. Convergence.com right now. The tickets are going fast and it's going to be a ton of fun. So check that out. Quick reminder here to check out Diversity Saves if you've got a second to see what they're all about and to find a way to support them if you can. Here's a friendly reminder to rate and review the show and share it with friends and family who play TTRPGs too. New reviews will be read at the end of episodes as a thank you. Thanks to the team at T4C Studios for the help editing and producing this episode. My intro and outro music is by Daniel Zombo. The Quickfire Chaos music is by Exacat, and the Quickfire Chaos mood music that plays underneath while we're roleplaying is by my buddy Arcane Anthems. Check out the episode notes for more of their great work. And, as always, until next time, roll some Nat 20s for me.